the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Heaven is preparing for the greatest spiritual revival in history. And God is preparing a people today upon whom he can pour out his Holy Spirit to be part of his final movement, sharing his love, sharing his grace, sharing his power with the ends of the earth. That's Pastor Mark Finley, and this is Hope Lives 365. At Hope Lives 365, we believe God answers prayer. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, keep in mind this telephone number throughout today's broadcast, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE. Here now is Pastor Mark Finley with today's Hope Lives 365. We are living in prophetic times. One of the major events that dominated the news was North Korea's successful test of a new type of intercontinental missile. You've seen it in the news. It's topped by a super-large heavy warhead that's capable of hitting the United States. In fact, the news reports indicated that in 38 minutes from launch in North Korea, in Pyongyang, that this missile could hit Los Angeles. In 45 minutes, this missile could hit Chicago. And in less than an hour, it could hit Washington, D.C. Now, North Korea's state media made the announcement of the missile test just after the missile was tested at 3 a.m. in the morning. And Kim Jong-un talked about this Wasong-15 missile that reached the highest altitude that any North Korean missile had ever reached. Now, the state news agency, KCNA, called this new missile the most powerful ICBM that North Korea has ever tested. After the launch, Kim said this, we finally realized the great historic cause of completing our state nuclear test. Now, the United States was really concerned about this launch, and James Mattis, U.S. Defense Secretary, said that this demonstrated that North Korea could hit any place in the world. Now, for millions, this is incredibly frightening, to think that a dictator, a world leader, could push a button and give the order to launch a nuclear attack and to think that within an hour that nuclear warhead could hit Washington, D.C. Men's hearts are filled with anxiety, and certainly Jesus was right in Luke chapter 21. And if you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Luke, the 21st chapter. The events that we see taking place around us today are events that were predicted centuries ago by our Lord. Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, talks about the signs of his return. And he describes the emotional context, 
the atmosphere just before his return to earth. And we notice in Luke chapter 21, verse 26, men's hearts failing them for fear. There is anxiety in our world today. Political leaders are nervous about the events that are taking place. There's tension in the air. There's uncertainty in the air. Men's hearts failing them for fear. And for the expectation, notice the word, the expectation, the uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future, of those things that are coming on the earth, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then, when then, at that time that men's hearts are failing them with fear, at that time that people are looking forward with uncertainty, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up. Notice what scripture says. It doesn't say look around you. If we look around us, our hearts are only filled with anxiety and fear and uncertainty. But it says then look up. Why? Because your redemption draws nigh. For the first time in human history, the human race has the capacity to destroy itself. Did we have that capacity 150 years ago? Certainly not. Did we have that capacity 200 years ago? Certainly not. For the first time in human history, the human race has the capacity to annihilate all of life on planet Earth. Now, what would the effects of a limited nuclear strike be if there were a limited nuclear strike? What would the effects be? The United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations recently commissioned a study, and the leading brains in the most prestigious universities in America studied this question. What effect would a limited nuclear strike have on America? And I'm going to read you from that study. Here's what it says. In addition to tens of millions of deaths during the days and weeks after the nuclear attack, there would probably be further millions, perhaps tens of millions of deaths in the ensuing months and years. Now, these are the leading brains in the top universities in America, the most prestigious educational institutions, and they are saying a limited nuclear strike would produce tens of millions of deaths in addition to the enormous economic destruction caused by the actual nuclear explosions. There would be some years during which the residual economy would decline further. We would lack supplies. They would be consumed. Our machines would wear out faster than we could recover production. Nobody knows how to estimate the likelihood that industrial civilization might collapse. Additionally, the possibility of significant long-term ecological damage strongly exists. Now, looking 2,000 years into the future, John on the island of Patmos, the old man, 90 years old, he writes with trembling hands. The lines on his face are deeply etched. His hair is gray now. He's an old man. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, but he writes with penetrating prophetic insight. He writes describing our day. There's one thing that's different, one major thing that's different about the predictions of the leading universities. They predict doom. God's word predicts hope. They predict disaster. God's word predicts glorious triumph for the kingdom of God. Take your Bible and turn 
to Revelation chapter 11. And in my thinking, Revelation 11 is one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible that tells us where we are in the stream of time. Revelation, the 11th chapter. And we're looking there at Revelation 11, verse 15 and onward. Revelation 11, verse 15 and onward. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This world is not going to be destroyed in some nuclear holocaust. That does not mean there won't be limited nuclear war. But what it does mean is that this world is not in the hands of man, it's in the hands of God. Listen, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. There is a power greater than any nuclear power in the universe. That's the power of the living Christ. And one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. Verse 18, the time of the dead that they should be judged, the second coming of our Lord, that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets. Jesus comes to give his rewards and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great. Now notice the last phrase is key. You should destroy those who destroy the earth. In other words, Christ is going to come at a time when the human race has the capacity to destroy itself. Christ is going to come at a time when the human race is on the verge of nuclear annihilation. Christ is going to come at a time when the human race has so desperate that it has run out of answers. But when the human race has run out of answers, Jesus has answers. The nations of this world tremble and shake before the living Christ. The world will not destroy itself in some nuclear holocaust. The earth trembles. Human beings quake in fear. Nuclear war looms on the horizon. But our God is in control. There is hope on the horizon. God will have the final word. God will make the final move. The winds of the Spirit will blow across this world. And the light of God's truth will be proclaimed to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Tens of thousands who have never heard the word of God will be enlightened with the word and the gospel will go to the earth. Heaven is preparing for the greatest spiritual revival in history. And God is preparing a people today upon whom he can pour out his Holy Spirit to be part of his final movement, sharing his love, sharing his grace, sharing his power with the ends of the earth. These are no common times. These are no ordinary times. And this is to be no common church. God longs to pour out his spirit. and To finish his work in a blaze of glory. God has a destiny for your life far greater than you can imagine. God wants to do something for you in the school, the university that you attend. He wants to do something for you there as a nurse in the hospital where you work. God wants to do something for you and through your life in the business that you work in. God wants to pour out his spirit through you to touch some other life for the kingdom of God because we're on the verge of eternity. God's preparing to do something amazing 
And you and I can have a part of it in these final hours of earth's history. The Holy Spirit's about to do something remarkable in our world. And even now, he's doing something remarkable. No, it's possible. It is possible to come to church every Sabbath and yawn and say, ho-hum, and go home. It's possible. It's possible that God is working all around us and we don't see it. It's possible that God is moving by his spirit. But we are so blinded by materialism, so trying to live life and scrape through life, that we miss the moving of the spirit. Now, there are two aspects of our study this morning. First is what the mighty winds of the Spirit want to do in us. And second, what the mighty winds of the Spirit want to do through us. Pastor Mark Finley will continue with more in just a moment. Stay tuned. Hope Lives 365 is a donor-supported ministry. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. If you have been blessed by our ministry, go to our website, hopelives365.com, or call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here now, once again, Pastor Mark Finley. Two aspects. What the mighty winds of the Spirit want to do in us. And what the mighty winds of the Spirit want to do through us. There's a new wind that's blowing. There's a new wind that's blowing. I sense it every place I go. There are believers, Adventist Christian believers, that are getting serious about their faith. They're coming to church early Sabbath morning and they're on their knees praying that the Spirit of God will come down. They're praying before they go to work that God will touch some of their heart and some of their life through them. The winds of the Spirit are blowing. Now, the Spirit cannot do much with us until he does something for us. The Spirit cannot do much through us until he does something in us. And so we're going to look at the twofold aspects of the Holy Spirit this morning. What God wants to do in us and what God wants to do for us. We're going to look at two very familiar passages of Scripture. We start with the story of Nicodemus. God did something in his life that was remarkable. God wants to do something in your life that's remarkable. John, the third chapter. John, chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 8 in John, chapter 3. We begin with John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who was this Nicodemus. What do we know about this man called Nicodemus? One thing we know about him is he must have been very wealthy. Because you remember in the Gospel of John, it says he brought about a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus' body. You don't buy those in a five and dime store. You don't go to Walmart and buy those, frankly, either. And you don't go to the old Kmart and buy them. If you're going to buy a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes, 
you got to be pretty rich. They would have cost the equivalent of the thousands of dollars. So one thing we know about Nicodemus is he's extremely wealthy. The second thing we know about Nicodemus is that he came from a very well-respected, a very extremely aristocratic family. He was well-known in Jerusalem. The scripture says that he was a Pharisee. Now, in many ways, the Pharisees were the best people in the whole country. I mean, you'd love to have a Pharisee as a neighbor. He wouldn't be playing loud rock music at night to keep you up. He wouldn't be burping beer in your face. He wouldn't be smoking cigarettes. I mean, the Pharisees were the best people in the whole country. Do you know there are only 6,000 Pharisees in all of Israel? That's all, 6,000 Pharisees. They took a solemn oath to spend their lives in meticulous obedience to every aspect of Jewish law. I want to read to you one of the sayings of the Pharisees, and this is what they governed their life by. Now, for the Pharisees, the Jewish law were the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were the books of the law, the books of Moses. And here is the life commandment of the Pharisee. He says, and I'm quoting from the rabbis, the law is complete. It contains everything necessary for living a good life. Therefore, in the law, there must be a rule and a regulation to govern every possible incident in every possible moment of life for every possible man. So what the Pharisees are saying is you have to have a rule for every single thing. For example, in the Old Testament, it says, don't pick up a burden on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees would say, you have to define what a burden is. What's a burden? Can a woman pick up her child on the Sabbath? Would that not be a burden and wouldn't she be breaking the law? Remember when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath and he said to the man, take your bed and walk? The issue wasn't that Jesus healed the man. The issue was the bed was a burden. See, so they had to define what a burden was. Every little thing was defined. Would it be a burden for me to pick up my glasses case on a Sabbath? Was that within the proper weight? Now, what about my glasses? Would that be a burden? No, that's functional, so I can put them on because I might not be able to see if I didn't have them and I might bump into a Gentile who would make me unclean, you see. What about, what about a Sabbath day's journey? They had amazing things. What about a Sabbath day's journey? You can't take a Sabbath day's journey. How far is a Sabbath day's journey? Well, that's where you have your meal. But wait a minute, if I put my meal in a picnic basket and I put it at my picnic spot and it's five miles from my home, that technically could become my home so I could go there. There were rules and counter rules. Here's another one. If a chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath, is it lawful to eat it? One group of Pharisees said, they argued about this for hours. See, one group of Pharisees said, yes, it is lawful because the chicken didn't know he worked when he laid the egg. The other group of Pharisees said, no, it is not lawful to eat the egg and you're breaking the commandments if you eat the egg because the chicken worked and he's guilty whether he knew if he worked or not. So these were the Pharisees, see. Every aspect of life, they had to have law that defined that aspect of life. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. He's wealthy. He's aristocratic. The Sanhedrin is a Supreme Court of the Jews. It consists of 70 members. So he's not only a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a tithe payer. So he pays his tithe very faithfully, even on mint and anise. That's little herbs. He's a Sabbath keeper. He's a health reformer. 
He's a Jew. He's looking for the coming of the Messiah. So he's an Adventist, tithe-paying, Sabbath-keeping, health-reforming Jew. But there's one thing about Nicodemus. He's a puzzled man. Nicodemus is a puzzled man. Let's go to the text. John, the third chapter. Nicodemus had all of the outward appearances of faith, but something was dramatically missing. He had the external trappings of religion, but it did not satisfy his heart needs. There was an aching of the soul deep within. It happened then, and it happens now. Often what we see on the outside is not really what is going on on the inside. A cloak of religion does not meet our heart needs. Nicodemus was unsatisfied. He longed for more. There was a hidden hunger in his heart. There was an insatiable thirst that all of the practices of Judaism could not satisfy. For religiosity is never a substitute for spirituality. You can look like you have it all together, but there can be an aching longing in your heart. An unsatisfied desire there. You can look like you have it all together, and all the externals can be there, but there can be something missing, a barrenness of soul. Nicodemus came at night to find the light. He came in the darkness to discover the dawn of a new day. He came in secret, but one day he would proclaim the gospel in public. Notice John chapter 3. We're looking there at verse 2. The story of Nicodemus is the story of a religious man. A man that had all the external trappings of religion, but a man that was puzzled, a man that was confused. The story of Nicodemus is the story of Sabbath keepers. It's the story of churchgoers. It's the story of people that are moral people. It's the story of good people. But it's the story of people that have an aching longing within for something more. Of the story of a people that need the blowing of the winds of the Spirit in their life to transform their lives. Nicodemus' story is your story. Nicodemus' story is mine. John, the third chapter, the second verse. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus tries to engage Christ in some kind of theological discussion. Often theological discussions cover up our inner need. Often the theological discussion merely is a smokescreen for the heart that's longing to know Christ better. And so Nicodemus comes as rabbi. Jesus bypasses that. Jesus goes right for the heart. Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, verse 4, says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now, William Barclay, in his Bible commentary, puts it this way, and I think it's just brilliant. Barclay paraphrases what Nicodemus said, and he says this. See, Nicodemus is not 
wondering about the desirability of the new birth. He's wondering about the possibility of the new birth. See, Nicodemus is not wondering about, is this desirable? Do I need this? He knows he needs it. What Nicodemus is concerned about is, for me, is it possible? So, Barclay paraphrases it and he says this. He puts these words in Nicodemus' mouth. You talk, Jesus, about being born again. You talk about this radical, fundamental change which is so necessary. I know that it's necessary. But in my experience, it's so impossible. There's nothing that I'd like more. But you might as well tell me as a full-grown man to enter my mother's womb and be born all over again. See, it's not the desirability of this change that Nicodemus questioned, but the possibility. He knew something was missing in his life. He knew he needed some kind of radical transformation. He wanted a change. He longed for a change, but he could not change himself. Is there somebody here this morning that you can identify with Nicodemus? The outer life is right, but you sense this morning that deep within your soul there's something missing. Deep within your soul, you long for something more. There's that unsatisfied longing within. Maybe you felt like Nicodemus. You have the outer trappings of religion, but there's a longing in your heart. And you struggle like Nicodemus did. And you say, I want it, but for me, is it possible? Are you fascinated by the prophecies of Revelation? Have you wished you could understand prophecy better? Do the symbols of the Bible's last book baffle you? God's Last Altar Call is just the book you need. Mark Finley clearly explains the events soon to unfold in this world. Be sure to call today for your copy. 888-244-HOPE That's 888-244-4673. The book is yours for a donation of any size. Thank you for your generosity. Your donations keep this ministry on the air. Again, thank you for your support. 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Thanks for listening today to Hope Lives 365. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.